Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then, learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. U.S. officials confirm that the U.S. has begun retaliatory strikes in the Middle East in response to that deadly attack that killed three American service members on Sunday in Jordan near the Syrian and Iraq border. U.S. Central Command, the division of the U.S. military that's responsible for the Middle East, says tonight that at 4 p.m. Eastern time, which is midnight local time, U.S. forces conducted airstrikes in Iraq and Syria against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated militia groups. Central Command tells, that, tells us that U.S. B-1 bombers, like the ones you see right here, struck more than 85 targets with more than 125 precise munitions. Central Command also tells us that the targets struck include command and control centers, intelligence centers, storage centers for rockets, missiles and drones, and supply chain facilities for militia groups and their Revolutionary Guard Corps sponsors. Earlier tonight, NBC News was briefed on these strikes by President Biden's National Security Council. Here's what they told us. We don't want to see a single more attack or strike on U.S. personnel or facilities uh, in the region. We don't want to see a single one more. Uh, the response actions that we took tonight, which are only the first of more to come, are meant to degrade and disrupt the capabilities of these groups uh, to uh, to conduct these attacks. I'm not going to, nor would I ever, uh, preview uh, or get ahead of any future potential um, uh, operations one way or the other. Uh, but as I said, um, th- these uh, these responses began tonight, but they're not going to end tonight. This is by far the largest military action from the Biden administration in response to the ongoing attacks on both U.S. forces and commercial trade vessels from Iranian-backed forces. It is also the largest show of direct American military force in the Middle East since the war in Gaza began in early October. Again, today's strikes were retaliatory strikes, triggered both by what the Pentagon says are 166 attacks directed at American troops by Iranian-backed forces and the drone strike on Sunday that killed three U.S. soldiers and injured more than 40 other U.S. service members at this space you see here in Jordan near uh, the Syrian and Iraq border. President Biden was at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware today as the remains of those three soldiers, Staff Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, Sergeant Kennedy Sanders, and Sergeant Brianna Moffat landed back in the United States. Officials have confirmed that American B-1 bombers were in the air today while President Biden attended what is known as a dignified transfer. And tonight, here is the president's statement on these strikes. This afternoon, at my direction, U.S. military forces struck targets at facilities in Iraq and Syria that the IRGC and affiliated militia used to attack U.S. forces. Our response began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. The United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. I'll let all those who might seek to do us harm know this. If you harm an American, we will respond. Joining me now is Missy Ryan, reporter for The Washington Post, who covers diplomacy and national security. Missy, thanks for being with me tonight. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, for lack of a better term, is the marriage of convenience between 
Iran and these proxy militias and what the strikes on those proxy militias do meaningfully to Iranian leadership? Yeah, well, this is a really tense moment for the Middle East and uh, really high stakes for the Biden administration that it seeks to intensify its confrontation with these militia groups and behind them, Iran. Iran's had this relationship going back decades with different armed groups across the Middle East. It's provided training, funding, arms. And over time, the network of groups that it backs has has grown, you know, from uh, Lebanon to Iraq and Syria following the the Iraqi uh, the war in Iraq and now in Yemen we're seeing the Houthi rebels. What Iran gets out of the deal is greater reach, the ability to strike at targets, including Israel and U.S. interests in the Middle East. And so, what the Biden administration is trying to do is really thread the needle here with this big, broad attack between eroding the capability of these groups to threaten American forces, American interests in the Middle East, without tipping into an all-out direct conflict with Iran, which would be hugely unpredictable, a huge distraction from the Biden administration's real foreign policy priorities, and just incredibly dangerous. Missy, can you talk a little bit more about the Quds Force, uh, the sort of elite part of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and their presence in, in Syria and Iraq? Well, the Quds Force has been blamed for attacks on American forces. Going back to the war in Iraq, hundreds of deaths were blamed on the the Quds Force. They're this paramilitary arm of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they have been the, the specific unit that has been tasked with training, arming, supporting these militia groups, which are this shadow force for Iran across the region. The United States conducted a really important attack in 2020 that killed Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of that force, a really widely revered figure. That was a big escalation at that time. Um, And, you know, what we're seeing right now is just sort of a different moment in this ebb and flow of a more or less direct conflict between the United States and Iran, the Quds Force just being really the tip of the spear in that sort of proxy conflict that we're seeing. Do you have any sense, after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, there was a lot of back-channel negotiation with Iran, de-escalatory communication, if you will. Um, We have, John Kirby said yesterday that he could not speak to any um, conversations that were happening between the U.S. and Iran or third parties that were facilitating those conversations. But do you imagine in a moment like this that there is some... um, that there are communications uh, happening to make sure this does not become direct confrontation? Well, there's absolutely public messaging on the part of both governments that they don't want that to happen. You know, we've seen that repeatedly from uh, from the White House, you know, as they're saying that they're not going to tolerate these kind of attacks, they're saying that they don't want direct war. We also have heard from Iran that they don't want direct war. And there are suggestions that Iran may be taking steps to rein in some of its militias, especially in Iraq. But, you know, there, there, there may be things going on behind the scenes via intermediaries. But I, I think really um, the, the question is, will there be some sort of miscalculation on the part of one or the other side where they do feel compelled um, maybe to save face to conduct uh, an, an escalatory attack? And that could you know, lead us in some very unpredictable places. Missy Ryan with The Washington Post, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it.
Now let's turn to Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor under President Obama. Ben, thank you for being here tonight. I know you've had a, a busy set of hours on this network. Um, the first thing I have to ask you is I'm old enough to remember the first time the U.S. Uh, struck targets in Iraq. And while we're talking a lot about Iran here, I wonder what you think the implications are uh, of striking targets in Iraq to go after Iran vis-a-vis the U.S. relationship with Iraq. Uh, Well, I think it's potentially very complicated, Alex. Um, The reality is these groups have been operating, as Missy said, in Iraq since the height of the Iraq war. They're pretty entrenched there. Um, And the U.S. has 2,500 troops in Iraq dating back to the counter-ISIS campaign. After we withdrew all the troops from Iraq in 2011, uh, 2,500 remain uh, as part of supporting counterterrorism operations, training the Iraqi security forces. But their presence is controversial inside of Iraq. And part of what these groups want is to provoke the United States into actions that lead to the Iraqi government asking the U.S. to get out, essentially. Uh, And that may be what's happening here, because it puts a lot of pressure on the Iraqi government. Look, it it makes them look like they don't control their sovereignty. They're not a part of these strikes. So every time the U.S. takes a pretty significant military action in Iraq, kind of over the head of the Iraqi government, which is majority Shia, uh, has uh, ties to Iran itself, it puts them in a really difficult spot here. So Iraq becomes kind of a battleground for this proxy between the U.S. and Iran. Also, if these groups wanted to respond, one of the places that is available to them as a target is the U.S. diplomatic presence in Iraq. Thus far, we've seen them target U.S. troops in the region, um, but also I'm sure that there's really heightened security around the U.S. embassy in Baghdad and for all Americans in Iraq. Well, yeah, and it's I'm sure the Biden administration remembers, uh, you know, what we've done in Iraq and is, is, is sort of understands those ramifications as well, which leads me to what do you think of the president's calibration here? I mean, we saw what he did when American sort of commercial interests were threatened in the Red Sea. Did he have to respond at this level when American lives were lost? No, he didn't have to. Um, I mean, the reality is there's been a war that has been a regional war for a long time, Uh, Since Hamas's attack on October 7th, that war has escalated dramatically across the region. What he's chosen to do here, Alex, is he's kind of gone about as far as you could turn the dial up without going directly into Iran. That would be crossing a major threshold into a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. What it feels like they're doing here in uh, you know, dozens of strikes today on several different uh, locations in Iraq and Syria and signaling that it's just the beginning of something, it feels like they're really going after essentially this network of militias and groups and supply nodes where the IRGC provides uh, weapons to these groups or just places where they operate. Um, and they may be trying to really put all these groups on their back foot. Now, that may help deter in the near term their capacity to launch attacks against U.S. troops. Where I'd caution, Alex, though, is that these groups aren't going to come out and surrender. They've lived through the Iraq war. They've lived through the Syrian civil war. The Houthis have lived through years of war in Yemen. Uh, They can be knocked back, but you're not going to eliminate these groups in the same way that Israel is not going to eliminate Hamas in Gaza. So I just think at some point, the only way to really bring security to U.S. forces in the region is for there to be a de-escalation and, and frankly, uh, a de-escalation in Gaza as well as across the region. Uh, They seem to want to send this message and knock these groups back in the meantime, but it's a very volatile and unpredictable situation in a part of the world where we've learned one thing, Alex, one thing. 
We don't control events uh, in the Middle East. Unpredictability is likely to follow any action that we take. Yeah, I want to talk. I mean, Missy suggested that Iran might be in communication with some of these these proxy groups and urging them to de-escalate. I mean, for lack of a better term, do you buy that? And do you think that that is what Iran wants in this in this hour? The the relationship between Iran and these groups is varied. As a general matter, yes, they provide them with weapons. They provide them with funding. They're not sitting there picking the target, you know, of the U.S. troops in Jordan. They're not sitting there, I think, in the the day-to-day tactics of what these groups are doing. I think what Iran is trying to do in signaling itself and some of uh, the—KH, one of the militias they support in Iraq, they came out and said, well, we want to attack U.S. forces for the time being. I think they're doing the same thing that the U.S. government's doing. They're saying, we don't really want— this war, but we're not like going to fully back down and get out of this business of supporting these groups, right? And so they're trying to calibrate it just like the U.S. is. Everybody's kind of playing this game of how much can we turn the escalation dial up and then turn it down to avoid a full-on regional war between the U.S. and Iran. Um, So nobody is in full control here. Iran is not in full control of these proxy groups. The U.S. obviously doesn't control Bibi Netanyahu's decision-making around Gaza. And and there's a three-dimensional, more than three-dimensional chess game happening here. Um, And and that's going to remain a powder keg so long as there's a state of war in the region and in Gaza. Yeah. To that end, I mean, Secretary Blinken is going back to the region uh, for his fifth time and I wonder what you think the broader sort of situation does to the, you know, the, the hard and fast reality of trying to negotiate a ceasefire. Well, look, what he's focused on is the core issue of can we get a durable ceasefire in Gaza that allows for the return of hostages and then creates maybe an opening for some diplomacy here. Now, the Israeli government has indicated that even that ceasefire wouldn't be permanent. Uh, and so they resume the hostilities again, resume the operations in Gaza. Things would pick back up because it should be said that these groups... Part of it, their ideology is to kind of resist uh, Israel and the United States in the region, obviously, to kind of take a moment like a war in Gaza to assert themselves. Uh, if you're not in a kind of lasting ceasefire, um, it's still going to be a, a bit of a tinderbox there. And in terms of getting that ceasefire in this context, I think it just got a little harder. It's not impossible. Qatar, not Iran, speaking of the complexity of the region, Qatar, not Iran, has been the key force that has been negotiating between the U.S. and Hamas and Israel. Um, So there's still, I'm sure, some formula they're going to put together. But when things pick up in the region like this, you know, the Iranians may be telling their guys in Hamas, now is not the time to kind of lay down your arms. The Israeli government may feel like Hezbollah and Lebanon might be activated by this. And so they might have a a desire to show that they're not going to back down and stop their military operations. You know, everybody's in this fight and nobody wants to be the first one to take a step back. And that's always a dangerous situation. War tends to beget more war, particularly in the Middle East. Let's hope that that trip yields some results to at least turn this dial of escalation downward. Yeah, I mean, you list just writing down the names of the the stakeholders and all this Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Yemen. I mean, talk about that's what is it? Eight dimensional chess. Uh, Ben Rhodes, my friend, thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate you. Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead tonight. We will talk to NBC News chief international correspondent Keir Simmons live from Iraq about the effects of these strikes and much more coming up next. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. 
Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. We are following breaking news from the Middle East this evening as the Pentagon launched airstrikes in Iraq and Syria tonight hitting more than 85 targets used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard and affiliated militia groups. This video reportedly shows one of those airstrikes targeting a weapons warehouse in Anbar province in western Iraq. Joining me now from Erbil, Iraq, is NBC News chief international correspondent Kier Simmons. Kier, what do we know about that reported strike in Anbar province? Well, that's a good question, because what we haven't had from the U.S. is specifics about exactly where they have struck. So what we've had to do here on the ground in the region is put together the reports that we've heard, unconfirmed, you have to say, uh, and video like that to try to understand exactly where those strikes have been. Now, uh, Ambar province there, uh, that is uh, a place where Katib Hezbollah is, and, and that is the group that is accused of uh, being responsible for that drone attack that killed those three American uh, service men and women. So I think that may be the reason for that strike there. Uh, Ambar province, of course, uh, is famous because uh, America uh, fought there in, in the invasion of Iraq and then, of course, fought ISIS there, as well as in eastern Syria, where we're hearing there are more, more strikes. So America's history of intervention in this place is quite staggeringly long uh, against different groups. Now, of course, uh, targeting Iranian-backed militia and uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard themselves, according to the US. Uh, and what we're understanding from what we're hearing, Alex, and what we're hearing on the ground is that there is a kind of a, a slither, a, a, a corridor where they've targeted uh, along that border between uh, Syria and Iraq, along to the border with Jordan where Tower 22 is, where that drone attack uh, happened. And it seems to be limited there to that. So, in other words, this really is an escalation. I mean, this is a, a, a big move by the Biden administration, but it is also limited at the same time. Now, on the one hand, there is a risk of destabilization you've been talking about on the show. So we've heard from the Iraqi prime minister here uh, complaining about uh, Iraq's sovereignty being being uh, invaded uh, and also accusing America of destabilizing the region with these with with these strikes. And we just heard in the last few minutes from CENCOM, I think maybe a response to that, uh, suggesting uh, that, in fact, it is Iran and Iran's proxies that are destabilizing uh, the region. So there's that piece of it. Uh, but another part of it, too, I think, is that We've, we're seeing, you know, 85 strikes, I mean, wide and uh, deep strikes by the U.S., but there's a lot that the U.S. hasn't done, uh, as far as we can tell. And, of course, we should say there, there's more to come. 
There's a lot the U.S. hasn't done. Um, for example, the, the, the U.S. doesn't seem has hit hasn't hit Iranian targets around Damascus Airport, which have been struck by the Israelis, for example, um, last year, for example. So, what does that mean? Well, I think from these strikes and also from what hasn't been struck, Americans will be pretty stunned by the extent of the Iranian reach and the depth of, of its network now, in particularly in Syria, but, but here in Iraq uh, too. So the message tonight from the Biden administration, and we've been talking about how calibrated this, the message tonight is, don't kill American servicemen and women, we will hit you, but what we're not doing is really slamming, if you like, that Iranian network across Syria, which Israel finds so threatening. A corridor, for example, that allows Iran to send, we send weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. I mean, to the extent that they even, according to analysis and reports, are, are investing in weapons making in Syria so it can be closer to Lebanon. So, so that, that, that broader picture, this shadow war with Iran, probably isn't being addressed by what's happened tonight. We wait to see what happens next. And that gets to the question of whether this is really going to move the needle for Tehran in terms of their strategic goals, which is to try and force the U.S. out of Iraq and to try to put pressure on Israel. Keir Simmons, NBC News chief international correspondent, just really valuable perspective from on the ground in Iraq. Thanks for your time, Keir. Stay safe. We will have more on tonight's breaking news coming up. But first, if the attempt by Trump and his fellow defendants does not boot D.A. Fonnie Willis from her criminal conspiracy case against them, well then, Georgia Republicans have a plan B and maybe a plan C. More on all that coming up next. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then, learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis today answered accusations of misconduct that have been coming from one of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election conspiracy case. Now, the attacks against DA Willis center around this man, Nathan Wade, one of three special prosecutors that DA Willis brought on board to oversee this case. Last month, Trump's co-defendant and former campaign operative, Mike Roman, alleged that DA Willis and Nathan Wade were carrying on a secret relationship. Mr. Roman then asked the judge in this case to remove Mr. Wade, Ms. Willis, and her entire office from the case. Mr. Roman contends that Nathan Wade wasn't qualified for the job on D.A. Willis's team, but Ms. Willis hired him anyway, ensuring that he would receive a generous salary and financial benefits thanks to their alleged relationship. 
Now, today, in a 176-page court filing, Fonnie Willis has offered a detailed response to those allegations. First, she confirms that, yes, she and Nathan Wade had a, quote, personal relationship in addition to their, quote, professional association and friendship. But Ms. Willis says the relationship began after she hired Mr. Wade to join her team. Mike Roman claims that Mr. Wade was using the money paid by Mrs. Willis's office to finance vacations he and the DA took together, but Ms. Willis disputes this. Financial responsibility for personal travel taken is divided roughly evenly between the two, and all expenses were paid for with individual personal funds. In other words, they were going Dutch. As to the claim that Nathan Wade was not qualified for the job, Fonnie Willis cites a litany of Nathan Wade's qualifications and notes that when Nathan Wade ran for an elected judicial post, Mike Roman's own lawyer was a vocal and visual presence in support of Nathan Wade's campaign. As evidence of that fact, D.A. Willis even includes this photo of Mike Roman's lawyer in a Nathan Wade campaign T-shirt, which the lawyer posted to social media with the caption, Vote Nathan J. Wade. And D.A. Willis argues that her relationship with Mr. Wade is not automatically disqualifying. It is worth noting that that there are at least two personal relationships among the collection of defense attorneys representing the defendants. And then she goes on to name names. So that is a defense from District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Did she break any laws? Well, it seems like the answer could reasonably be no. As former senior Justice Department official Andrew Weissman notes, the new Fonnie Willis brief supporting supporting affidavit and exhibits are so powerful You wish the substance was public right after the allegations so as to nip them in the bud. But does that mean this whole saga is over? Unlikely. After all, D.A. Willis has criminally charged the former president and several members of his inner circle, and the stakes for this trial are enormously high. So none of this is going to go quietly into the night. Independent of the actual legality here, there are a few other factors that D.A. Willis must contend with. Consider the case of Burt Jones. Jones was a state senator in 2020. He served as one of the fake electors in Georgia, helping Donald Trump create bogus election documents to try and overturn Joe Biden's victory. And Fonnie Willis wanted to investigate Burt Jones, but she was stopped from doing so. A Georgia judge, Judge Robert McBurney, blocked her on the grounds that D.A. Willis had helped raise money for Burt Jones's Democratic opponent in Jones's race for lieutenant governor. Now, Judge McBurney did not cite any laws broken, but in the courtroom, he called Fonnie Willis's actions a what-are-you-thinking moment. Judge McBurney wrote in his opinion, quote, an investigation of this significance, garnering the public attention it necessarily does and touching so many political nerves in our society, cannot be burdened by legitimate doubts about the district attorney's motives. The district attorney does not have to be apolitical, but her investigations do. Now, it's possible that the judge in the current criminal case, Judge Scott McAfee, could make a similar determination here with regards to Ms. Willis prosecuting the election conspiracy case or not. But then there is Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature. The Georgia Senate has already launched an investigation into D.A. Willis, which they could use to subpoena records from D.A. Willis or force her to testify under oath, which could be of interest to the commission that Georgia Republicans created last year for the sole purpose of removing so-called far-left prosecutors. Now, that commission was effectively put on ice by the Georgia State Supreme Court. But as of now, Georgia Republicans are trying to revive it, and they are using Fonnie Willis as an example of why that commission is needed. 
Joining me now is the man I quote often and listen to even more often, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and the co-host of the Indispensable Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Also with me is Clark Cunningham, a professor of law and ethics at Georgia State University. Um, Andrew, I just know from our pre-conversation that you see this maybe slightly differently than I do. How much peril do you think this election conspiracy case is in? Um, not a lot. I okay. mean, I think um, I I really meant what I had sort of <laughs> tweeted out, which is if you think about where we were before this filing, the intimation that was made by defendant Mark, Mike Roman was that you had a boyfriend who was incompetent, who was hired by Fonnie Willis solely because of that relationship. And then they were sort of the way they were going Dutch is that the profits of getting this contract were then split and she was getting this money. That was the look Mm -hmm. of the allegations and the response. And obviously there can be a hearing and we'll see what comes out of this. But the response with a signed affidavit from Wade uh, that was submitted today is that none of that is true. Um, so I think at this point, people might be nibbling around the edges, but you know, they, there's a sworn affidavit that there was no relationship at the time. There is a sworn affidavit, which seems really strong to me about his qualifications. And there, I just want to point out no lawyer is perfect. You are building a team. Um, I have been in that situation where when I've been hired, I've told the person hiring me, like, just so you know, this is what I'm not good at. Right. And they're trying to pick somebody who has can fit with other people. But I thought that was a really strong part. And then they said they roughly divided everything. So I just I just thought that the main thrust of what was being exposed, which to me is not that there's a relationship. There is, that happens. That's not the issue. It's the issue of hiring somebody, either profiteering or hiring the person because of that relationship. And so I thought the main thrust, again, if that is, if there's no contrary evidence and this is the record, I think this is very much attempts in a teapot in terms of the legal issue that's before um, this judge. I think the defendant has no right to complain about it. You know, whether they're ethics issues, whether all of these sort of I's were dotted and T's were crossed, that that may there may be something there. But, you know, to me, the sort of main thrust of this seemed really looked like a mountain out of a molehill. Um, Professor Cunningham, I I know that you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and I'd love to read an excerpt of it, where you said, I believe the judicious and farsighted course would be for Ms. Willis to take a personal leave of absence and turn over control of the district attorney's office and the case against Mr. Trump to a career deputy district attorney. Now, that was before uh, this filing came out today, and I wonder if there's anything in it in terms of her explanation of things, her defense, if you will, that changes your mind. Well, with all respect to your other guest, um, reading this uh, response and the, I would say, very vague and evasive affidavit uh, filed by Nathan Wade strengthens my opinion that she should take a temporary leave of absence from the office and turn it over to a career prosecutor. Um, I think that uh, there's a a lot that the uh, Trump defendants can work with here. Um, And uh, I think it's way too early to make any predictions about what the ultimate o- outcome of the disqualification motion is going to be. I've said that before. I say that now. But let me point out one thing that's, that's pretty clear just from what's been filed. So uh, we've seen uh, Mr. Roman's lawyer filed something late this afternoon 
finally got a, a, a evidence uh, that Mr. Wade spent about $3,800 at the beginning of uh, November 2022 to pay for both of them to take a three-day luxury trip to Aruba. Uh, they came back from Aruba, and uh, at that point, he did not have a contract. His contract had expired. They together signed a new contract right after coming back from Aruba. She personally signed it. He personally signed it. Uh, I cannot understand if she was in a romantic relationship with this man as a public official, why she would be signing a contract, an outside contract uh, with someone that she's in a relationship with. Um, and then that contract uh, gave her the authority to allow him to go over monthly limits. And the next year she did it month after month after month. He collected at least 30000 more dollars than the cap. And she apparently personally approved it. So uh, I, I don't see these filings as resolving issues at all. Again, I'm not prejudging whether she would be disqualified, but I do think the defendants still have a lot to work with to argue that she had a financial stake in the amount of money he was getting paid uh, as outside counsel. Um, I can't get into the receipts. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. I absolutely trust that Professor Cunningham has looked at Mike Roman's lawyer's filing yeah. um, uh, judiciously. But <clears throat> I'm sure there there is going to be some amount of back and forth about all of this. Yep. I go to the, the Burt Jones case where it's, you know, there's the legal question and then there's the ethical question. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as distasteful as all this may be, this is the highest profile case, maybe in uh, certainly in this DA's lifetime, maybe in Georgia state history, going after a former right. president on charges of election conspiracy, a RICO charge against a president. And I just wonder, you know, is there some merit to, as Professor Cunningham suggests, basically taking a leave of absence, which would not scuttle the broader case and would turn it over to someone else in her office. So um, I think I agree with the professor that that um, it is useful to await the hearing and the full facts in the yeah. same way that I, I found that the filing today was informative and changed my view. I was concerned about the idea of hiring somebody while you were in a relationship. I'm less concerned about the idea that the contract continued because these were six months, six month contracts. But I do think let's wait for the hearing. I do not think that there should be an overreaction of saying, oh, if there's an appearance, you should withdraw. I've been in those kinds of mm -hmm. cases. I've worked for Robert Mueller. I have seen high profile cases and the kinds of allegations and spurious allegations that are made. Um, this comes up a lot of times when people ask judges to recuse because of an appearance of, of impropriety. And usually really good judges, their first instinct is, you know what? I don't want any question. I'm happy to recuse. And then they think, Unless wait it's a Clarence Thomas. It, I'm sorry. It, it, it had to be said. OK, true. I, I did put a caveat on how I phrased that. But um, but then judges think about, wait a second, that is not how you can run a system, that you don't just recuse every time somebody raises an issue. There really has to be a legal standard. It has to be met. You cannot let one side or the other use gamesmanship. And so um, if this turns out to be um, something where, um, uh, yes, she had a personal relationship with somebody in an office after they were hired, um, that to me is not a reason to recuse. I would note, just to the professor's point, that one thing that is at least alleged by the Fannie Wallace submission is that every receipt, all of the payments had to be approved by the chief financial officer of Fulton County. I was looking for the, exactly that kind of thing. What kind of Safeguards. belt and, exactly. Um, if you're having that relationship, 
what are you putting in place? That doesn't mean did they, you know, we could, there could be more to it, to the professor's point. I, I do think it is useful to have a, a hearing on this, but I do think this is a much more complicated situation and people should not be saying, oh, the better way to deal with this is just to recuse. I think that you cannot run a system that way. Um, Professor Cunningham, there's there's the sort of legal avenues here. There are also political avenues here. The Georgia State Legislature um, has their, their committees and their panels that are going to be investigating this. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the climate in and around this case sure. in the state of Georgia and, and sort sure. of, please, the mic is yours. Yeah, I'm going to add that, though. Let me add a footnote to what uh, Andrew just said. And that is my suggestion is in many ways strategic. Um, I, I, I'm an expert on how this these, these things go in Georgia. And we're looking at months, months of delay, I would say, even if she ultimately prevails, um, months of delay. And right now, we've just found out that the D.C. case is, has been uh, taken off the March schedule. There's an opportunity for, for the uh, Georgia DA's office, maybe just to sever Donald Trump, try him alone and jump into this space that's in the spring right now and give the whole nation a televised trial right away. Um, before the general election. I think that's incredibly valuable. And Fannie Willis could make that happen if she made this disqualification motion go away, which she could do right now if she took a leave of absence. So it's a strategic point. I appreciate Andrew saying prosecutors don't want to be chased chased around by accusations, but uh, DA Willis is smart enough to realize that this is going to go on for a while. It's not going to be resolved February 15th. Now, in terms of what's going on here, I think there are a lot of other problems that could cause uh, D.A. Willis to be removed. We have a new prosecuting attorney's qualifications commission uh, that's about to get into business. Uh, there's going to be a complaint filed against her. Uh, I'm quite sure they're going to investigate her. Uh, there's this uh, committee that's been formed by the state Senate. And, you know, I, I mentioned the invoices before. I just have to say, the, you know, I've been a legal ethics expert for decades. These are just about the worst billing invoices I have ever seen. And I, I don't have anything against Nathan Wade, but the state, the, they should not have been paying him on these invoices. I mean, he submitted invoices for like $10,000 for a week of work. He said 40 hours and that was it. Uh, I've never seen invoices like this. And again, it makes you suspicious about who's about them being approved by someone who's in a relationship with him. The, the new investigative committee of the state Senate is going to dig into this. And I think it's possible, I'm just speculating, but I think it's possible they're going to find out he overbilled, uh, which, if, uh, ask Andrew, but that's arguably wire fraud. So this is this is not going to go away. Uh, I think it's just going to get worse as long as D.A. Willis continues, as she did today, to fight um, really uh, in, a, in a pretty, pretty rough way. Uh, um, Andrew, <clears throat> the, the, this is um, for people who are looking for accountability here. This has not been uh, a great week uh, as far as holding Donald Trump and some of his associates accountable. Uh, we know that Judge Hutkin has wiped the March 4th trial date off the calendar. As Professor Cunningham says, there are a lot of delays that are happening in Georgia that could prevent this from ever being heard before an election. Yep. But keep your eye on two things. So one, the week before you had the Eugene Carroll case and the second trial there, that is some, it's not a criminal case, some level of, of enormous accountability. Um, and, you know, the one silver lining, I mean, of course, like you, I'm waiting every day for the D.C. Circuit. I'm not justifying that in any way, shape or form, as we've discussed. Um, but there is the opportunity for the New York criminal case, which is scheduled for March 25th, to step in. Alvin and, Bragg. Exactly. And so that case could go forward. Um, so, you know, then the final point is it is infuriating, but 
our system um, works and it doesn't work at the political timeline and due process and sort of being able to appeal things and to have courts consider things is part of our process. And it's true for Donald Trump and any other defendant. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they still do turn. Andrew Weissman, Professor Clark Cunningham, thank you both so much for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Still ahead tonight, we continue our coverage of the U.S. uh, retaliatory strikes against Iran proxy forces, and we'll take a look at the place at the very center of this conflict. That's next. In the days following the October 7th Hamas terror attack in Israel, President Biden announced the movement of American military resources to the region in support of its ally. The president also had this warning for Iran. We moved the U.S. carrier fleet to the eastern Mediterranean and we're sending more fighter jets there in that region and made it clear, made it clear to the Iranians, be careful. While there is no direct link between Iran and the Hamas terror attack, Iran does support Hamas and has done so for years. Iran has publicly condemned Israeli military action in Gaza, as well as American support for Israel's war against Hamas. And in recent weeks, militias and resistance groups backed by Iran began a series of attacks on U.S. personnel stationed in Syria, Iraq and Jordan. According to the Pentagon, there have been more than 160 attacks to date. And after one of the attacks by an Iranian-backed militia killed three American soldiers stationed in Jordan last weekend, President Biden ordered today's retaliatory strikes. In the meantime, Israel's military response to the October 7th terrorist attack continues to decimate civilian life in Gaza. At least half the buildings have been destroyed or damaged since the war began. New reporting from The New York Times shows the IDF purposefully and systematically demolishing homes, schools and mosques. Israeli officials told The Times that these controlled demolitions are meant to create a buffer zone along the border of Gaza, which would violate U.S. policy against the reduction of Gazan territory. That revelation comes just days after Israeli security forces, disguised as doctors and patients, raided a hospital in the occupied West Bank and killed three Palestinian militants. That escalation appears to be in clear violation of international humanitarian law. Meanwhile, negotiations for a potential pause in the fighting continued this week. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be returning to the Middle East this weekend to take part in diplomatic efforts, as the Biden administration is reportedly exploring options for a formal recognition of a Palestinian state. A senior official stressed this will not happen anytime soon, but the potential for a significant U.S. policy shift on Palestinian statehood could pressure Israel in the ongoing diplomatic negotiations. When we come back, we'll talk about what this latest round of U.S. strikes means for Iranian leadership and its citizenry. That's next. We feel really confident about the precision of those of those targets and the initial indications are that we hit exactly what we meant to hit. For more on how Iran might respond to tonight's attacks, I'm joined by Dr. Abbas Milani, director of Iranian studies at Stanford University. Professor Milani, thank you for making the time. I, I wonder how you think broadly these strikes will be seen by the Iranian citizenry. I think it will be seen as a controlled response by the U.S. uh, trying to show the Iranian regime that uh, it is not going to tolerate further attacks on U.S. uh, citizens. But it's also going to be seen as a very mild response uh, to a regime that keeps increasing uh, its pressure in in the region. Uh, I don't think people of Iran want war. 
but I also think they will see this as a very uh, controlled, uh, necessary response to an act of aggression by regime's proxies. Can you speak a little bit more about how the war in Gaza has sort of reoriented Iran's position in the region? The war in uh, Gaza hasn't reoriented Iran's position. Iran's position, this regime's position, not Iran. Iran used to have very good diplomatic relations with Israel. This regime's position has always been that there cannot be two states uh, and that the only solution is to create one uh, from river to the sea state that is predominantly Palestinian through a referendum. So they have never accepted the two-state solution. And the more uh, the war continues, and the more some people in Israel refuse to accept that there has to be a Palestinian state, the more I think Iran gets emboldened in its rhetoric and in its uh, proxy activities. I, I guess I meant more in terms of the normalization sort of process that was underway with the Saudis and the Israelis, which looks to be um, more in danger and seems like it would give Iran more currency, if you will, in terms of power in the region. Uh, I think that's temporary. Uh, I agree with you that it's temporary. Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel might have had uh, better or closer diplomatic relations, but I think Saudi Arabia has made it clear that unless there is a two-state, they're not going to normalize. And I think in the mid-run, not in the long run, Saudi Arabia, I think, is going to establish uh, relations with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, as will other states. I don't think Iran is in the long term the winner in all of this, but in the short term, in the midterm, they are having a, uh, a time advertising the intransigence of Israel and not accepting a Palestinian right to exist in that region. Dr. Abbas Milani from Stanford University, thank you so, t so much for your time, sir. We hope to speak with you again soon. Pleasure. That is our show for tonight. We will continue to follow this breaking news story out of U.S., the airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then, learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.